Last week we concluded our series through the Old Testament, and today we begin a new series in the Sermon on the Mount. So for the next several weeks we're going to be looking at Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Now the setting for the sermon is one of the more beautiful spots in Israel, at least as far as I am concerned. Jesus called the disciples to himself on a mound or an elevated place. Out in front of that, there is some pasture land where Jesus fed the multitude. And down from that, a little to the left, is the town of Capernaum where Simon Peter had a house. And then at the end, there is the Sea of Galilee. So as you look at the setting or consider the setting there... There is a mound up here, and then pasture land, and then at the bottom of it, the Sea of Galilee. It has been said that the Sermon on the Mount is the constitution of the Christian life. And the Beatitudes are the preamble to the constitution. Mark Twain was once asked if he had difficulty with the Bible, understanding the Bible. He said, it is not the parts that I don't understand that cause me difficulty. It is the parts I do understand that cause me difficulty. I can assure you, if you take seriously the Sermon on the Mount, it is going to trouble you somewhat. Now, the sermon is not inclusive in that it does not deal with everything Jesus said, but it is instructive. It tells us what is expected of us as Christians. Now, folks, that's what I want you to understand in these next weeks. This is what Jesus expects of you if you say you are a Christian. The Beatitudes are paradoxes. For instance, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, they will receive the kingdom. Well, that doesn't make sense to us generally. The poor and kingdom, that just doesn't go together. And then he says, blessed are they that mourn, they shall be comforted, and blessed are the gentle or the meek, because they will inherit the earth. So you see then that as we look through the Beatitudes, they are paradoxes. Another thing you will notice about them is that they are progressive, in that each one of the Beatitudes builds on the next. So they are not separate from each other. They are progressive, each one building on the next. Now, today we're going to look at the first beatitude. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, or upon a hill, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, Phillips begins this beatitude with the words, how happy. Beck begins it with the word, happy. Nine times in the beatitudes, Jesus introduces each one with the word, blessed or happy. Well, all of us want to be happy, do we not? I mean, we want to be happy, but most of us, and possibly all of us, understand happiness in terms of favorable circumstances. If I have favorable circumstances, then I am happy. In fact, the root word for the word happy is hap, which carries with it the idea of chance, 
or favorable circumstances. The dictionary defines happiness as favored by luck or fortune. Now, that's our understanding of happiness. That if my circumstances are favorable, then I am happy. In other words, if I have money, I am happy. Man, can you imagine winning the lottery? Now, I don't know how you'd do that because you didn't buy any tickets. But if you did, I won the lottery, I would be so happy. Or you've seen those commercials concerning, uh, what is it, publishers, uh, clearinghouse, sweepstakes, or whatever. I mean, all those people are just jumping up and down, and they, they just seem so happy. Why? Well, because they just won the sweepstakes. And so if I had some money, then I would be happy. Or if I go to the doctor and the doctor gives me a good report, I'm happy. I went to my doctor not long ago and he did the physical on me and he came back and he said, well, you're just about perfect. He said, now, I'm not saying you're perfect because you're not, but you're just about, you know, that's probably better than the rest of you. I mean, I'm almost perfect according to my, it makes me feel good. So you're happy when you go to the doctor and you get a good report. Now, some of you think that if I could just get married, I would be happy. See me after the service. <laughs> and I'll send you to someone, not me. I'll send you. Do you know that 50% of marriages end in divorce? And that says nothing about those living together and not liking each other. So some of you think, if I just get married, then I'm going to be happier. If I had children, then I'm going to be happy. Let me tell you, when you have children, then you begin to do research on that empty nest thing. It's not all that bad. In fact, when we had our first grandchild, one of you, I'll not say who, but one of you said to me, now, you are a grandparent now, and there are two lights that bring you great happiness. I said, two lights? What are they? Well, the headlights when you see them coming, and the taillights when you see them leaving. <laughs> so if I just had children, then I would, I would be happy. Well, some years ago, Robert Schuller wrote a book Title the Be Happy Attitudes. Now, Jesus is not speaking about an attitude here. So if you approach this as a happy attitude, then you have missed the whole point. In fact, Barclay says the word blessed, which is used in each of the Beatitudes, is a very special word. It is the Greek word makarios. Now, that was the name, or that was the word, that was used to refer to the island of Cyprus because it was called the Happy Isle. And Barclay wrote, they called it so because they believed that Cyprus was so lovely, so rich, and so fertile an island that a man would never need to go beyond its coastline to find the perfectly happy life. Makarios, then, describes that joy which has its secret within itself. That joy which is serene and untouchable and self-contained. That joy which is completely independent of all the chances and the changes of life. So, the word that Jesus used, blessed, makarios, the word that he uses there is speaking of the person who has everything within himself or everything within herself to make life worthwhile. That's what the word means. Blessed, happy, nothing to do with circumstances. 
He is referring to that man, that woman, who has everything they need inside that makes life worthwhile and content. Pal Bonham, who was the executive director of the Baptist Convention in Ohio, wrote, The Christian's happiness never depends on what happens to him, but what has happened in him. You see that? What Jesus is speaking of here is not a circumstantial happiness, but he is speaking of an internal happiness. And he demonstrated that as he faced the cross. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 2, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. See, it didn't say that he enjoyed the cross, but because of the joy that he had, he was able to endure the cross. Paul and Silas also demonstrated this kind of happiness when they were in prison. In Acts chapter 16, verse number 25, the scripture says, But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them, I would imagine. Normally, when someone is in prison, they are not praising the Lord. They are not singing hymns of praise to the Lord. So the prisoners were listening to them because they had that joy that was internal. Certainly, it was not a joy based on their circumstances, but it was a joy that was internal, a joy that had come from the Lord. I know some Christians like that, don't you? Not many, but I know some. Tim Everhart back here. Now, Tim has some physical challenges that he has to deal with, some health health issues he has to do. I look back there on Sunday morning, he's just back there just praising the Lord, just carrying on. Now, you're a blessing to me, Tim. I appreciate your spirit. I know some people like that. They just have that joy internally that comes from the presence of God working in their life. It is not determined by favorable circumstances on the outside, but it is determined by Jesus on the inside. It is Jesus who gives us happiness that is not dependent on circumstances, but is internal. Well, what's the secret to it? Look at verse number 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. None of that stands in contrast to our understanding of blessed are the poor. And the reason it does is because we usually misread it. We read it and think that it is speaking about material poverty. You know what? If it were speaking of material poverty, blessed is the person who is materially poor then we ought to have no programs. We ought to never try to rescue anyone from poverty. Just let them be in poverty and enjoy themselves. And yet when we read this passage of Scripture, there are so many who read it and they think it is speaking of material poverty. And so we start looking around for Mother Teresa or someone. It's not speaking of material poverty. It is not speaking of one who is poor in influence. He says, blessed are the poor what? In spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Now, there are two words in the New Testament translated poor. The first word is penes. Vine says it means a laborer, 
to work for one's daily bread. All right? So that word speaks of someone who just barely gets by. I mean, they are a working person. They make enough money to pay their bills, but they don't have anything left over. It speaks of someone who just barely gets by. They are poor. That is, that is mentioned. That word is used in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 9, where Paul wrote, He scattered abroad. He gave to the poor, the penes. So that is the first word. It is a word that refers to someone who just barely has enough to get by. The word that is used here is a different word. It literally means to crouch. And it is a picture of a beggar on the street crouching with his hand extended because he is not even able to take care of himself. It refers to someone who is incapable of meeting their own needs. So what is Jesus saying? Blessed is the spiritual beggar. That's what that says. Blessed is the spiritual beggar. Well, the thing that keeps us from seeing ourselves as spiritual beggars is pride. We don't see ourselves as spiritual beggars, do we? And it keeps us from happiness. It keeps us from from Christ. It keeps us from salvation. There are those people who say, well, I don't need salvation because of pride. They don't feel that they need salvation. I don't need to be saved. What's this all about? There are others who see themselves as deserving salvation. If if someone's going to be saved, it ought to be me. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. I'm better than some of the other people I know. And you see, it is pride that keeps us from recognizing that we are spiritual beggars. And that keeps us from happiness, that keeps us from Christ, that keeps us from salvation. Now, if pride is the problem, then humility is the virtue. And humility precedes salvation. Folks, one will never come to Jesus Christ as Savior until, first of all, that person humbles themselves before the Lord. Now, that was the Apostle Paul. Before he became a follower of Christ, he was a religious person, and he was a proud religious person. He felt that he was all right, but that kept him from this kind of happiness. That kept him from Christ. That kept him from salvation. And then he saw himself as the chief of sinners. And when he saw himself as the chief of sinners, he humbled himself. It was then that he was able to come to Christ. You see, humility precedes salvation and humility precedes service. You will never serve the Lord unless you're, first of all, an humble person. You know the story of Isaiah in chapter 6 when he went into the temple to, after Isaiah had died and, and he has this vision of God there. Isaiah saw himself and he said, Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And it was after that that the Lord said to Isaiah, Who will go for me? Who will serve? And Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. But do you see how that worked? There was the humility that was followed by service because humility precedes service. That was not only true with with Isaiah, that that was true with Moses. Moses was overwhelmed with his inadequacy when God said to him, Moses, I want you to be the one to lead my people out of bondage. And Moses said, Lord, who am I? Who am I to do that? Why should Pharaoh listen to me? Why should anyone follow me? 
But there was that humility, and then God was able to use Moses to lead his people out of bondage. You want to serve the Lord? Let me tell you, those people who are full of themselves are never going to be servants of God. It it is that person who understands their spiritual condition and has the humility of Christ that God can use. I'm not saying that I'm that person at all, but I am absolutely overwhelmed and astonished that God would use me in anything. The pastor, people ask me, do you think God has a sense of humor? I said, I'm the pastor of First Baptist Columbia. That says to me God has a sense of humor. But folks, you see, what happens is that we first of all have humility And it is humility that precedes our coming to Christ. It is humility that precedes our service to Christ. So the secret to happiness, he says, is to recognize our spiritual poverty. I see myself as a spiritual beggar. And then what is the result of it? Look again in verse number 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Spiritual beggar. The kingdom of heaven? That, that's not the way we... We don't normally think of the poor as having the kingdom, do we? I mean, no, that, that belongs to, uh, to Donald Trump. Or that, that belongs to uh, Bill Gates. Somebody, I mean, somebody who has rich, some, somebody who's rich and have money, they're, they're, powerful. they're powerful. Let me give you a perfect example of that, an illustration of it, and it's the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler who came to Jesus had everything that we think the one who has the kingdom has. He was rich. He was young. He was a ruler. Max Licato wrote, he's rich, Italian shoes, tailored suit. His money is invested. His plastic are gold cards. He lives like he flies first class. His belly is flat. His eyes sharp. He's a ruler. Powerful. He's the rich young ruler. See, that's the ones we think who have the kingdom. Those who are rich, those who are powerful. Now look at this young man. He was rich. He was young. He was powerful. He had everything. But Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. They have the kingdom. In fact, the word that is used there is emphatic. And it means theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom. It belongs only to them. The kingdom belongs only to those who are poor in spirit. Well, okay. If the kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit, and I recognize my spiritual condition and I've come to Christ, then when do we receive the kingdom? When are we in charge of the kingdom if the kingdom goes to the poor in spirit? Well, there are those who say, well, that, that, that is later. You know, this is all going to be fulfilled in the millennial reign of Christ. And so when Christ then comes to reign on the earth for his thousand-year reign, then this is going to be fulfilled. It comes later. It comes during the millennial reign. And as a matter of fact, uh, it is very idealistic to think these kinds of things are going to happen in our time. It's not meant to be literal. Let me say to you my understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. It is for now. Nowhere in the text does it suggest that it is for later. 
Nowhere in the... And in the, the context of the sermon, there is nothing that says it is for later. In fact, Jesus called the disciples together on the mount, and he said, this is the way I expect you to live. So I do not believe, and I know there are possibly some of you who think that this is for the millennial reign of Christ, but look at verse number 11 with me. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Folks, that's not going to happen during the millennial reign of Christ. People are not going to be persecuting Christians during the time that Jesus reigns on earth. Look at verse number 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. People are not going to be slapping us around during the millennial reign of Christ. So there's absolutely nothing within this sermon that suggests to me that it is for later. I think this is the way that the Lord expects us to live now. The kingdom is for the spiritually poor now. Well, how can we claim it? Well, not in human strength. I know that there are those people who think that being spiritually poor comes through physical means. That uh, if I am impoverished materially, if I am impoverished materially, then I am poor spiritually. And so there are some who say, well, I will sell everything that I have and, and I'll give away everything that I have and I'll go join a monastery somewhere and I'll spend my life in a monastery and, and I'll be spiritually poor. Nope. Spiritual poverty is internal. It is not external. It comes when we recognize our condition. Do you want to be spiritually poor? Then, ladies and gentlemen, you must first of all recognize your spiritual condition. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. There's not one person here within their own strength that is considered to be righteous by God. Not within your own strength. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We simply miss the mark. We do not measure up. So it, it, it comes, spiritual poverty comes when I recognize my condition that I am a sinner. I don't measure up. I am a sinner and I repent of my sin and I come to Jesus Christ as my Savior. Then I am a spiritually poor person. Blessed are those who are spiritually poor. Spiritual beggars. Are you? It is the person who truly recognizes their condition, repents of it, and comes to Christ. Now, let me conclude. Are you poor in spirit? How do you know? How does one know if one is a spiritually poor person? Well, first of all, if I'm poor in spirit, I lose sight of myself. I am no longer the focus. The focus instead is on God now. If I am a spiritually poor person, as Jesus was speaking of here, then the focus is on God. And the focus is on others. The Apostle Paul wrote, preferring one another as better than ourselves. Now let me ask you to do something. I want you to look at the person next to you.
Do you see that person as better than you? John MacArthur said, Truly humble is the one who has to look up to everyone else. Truly humble is the one who has to look up to everyone else. The spiritually poor person is not self-focused, but focuses on God and focuses on others. Something else. When you're poor in spirit, you seek His glory. If you're poor in spirit, you're not looking for personal position. You are looking for the glory of God. Do you want to really bring glory to God? Is that why you live? Is that what you do? I want to glorify Him. I want to bring glory to Him. That is the spiritually poor person. Someone who wants to bring glory to God. Third, if you're poor in spirit, you don't complain. I'm not talking about ever, but I'm talking about habitually being a complainer. Because you realize you don't deserve what you have. See, that's a spiritually poor person. A person who is spiritually poor is not the one who's always complaining about everything. Because they understand that they are incredibly blessed to have what they do. I don't deserve what I have. So why should I complain? That is the spiritually poor person. The spiritually poor person does pray because they understand that they are spiritual beggars and they have to have the Lord. If you are spiritually poor, you pray because you understand your dependence upon the Lord. A person who is poor in spirit takes Christ on his terms, not our terms. You see, when we are filled with self, we want Christ on our terms... But when we are spiritually poor, we want Christ on His terms. The person who is poor in spirit is grateful to God for His mercy and His grace. So let me ask you a question. How do you measure up? I'm not asking you to acknowledge that in any way, but just I want you. How are you doing? How are you measuring up? Honestly. Not so good? Well, congratulations, because you're on the way to being spiritually poor. You say, well, I'm not measuring up that good. That's good, because that means you recognize your spiritual condition, that you're spiritually poor. So Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, that is the beginning beatitude. As Jesus speaks to us about having a life that is worthwhile, we begin by recognizing our spiritual poverty. Our gracious Father and God, I pray that your Spirit might move in our midst today. And Lord, that you might reveal to us our spiritual condition. Father, it's so easy for us to compare ourselves to someone else and to decide we're not that bad or that we're okay. But Lord, I pray that you will reveal to us what you see, that we will acknowledge our spiritual poverty, that we might come to Jesus and be forgiven. I pray today, Father, that your spirit would move in our midst, draw us to Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. In just a moment, I'm going to have you stand, and the choir is going to sing a hymn of invitation. And my friend, if you today would say, you know, I am spiritually poor, 
spiritual beggar and I want to give my life to Jesus Christ, then would you come today? Let one of our staff members pray with you. If you're looking for a church home, we'd love to have you as a part of our family. You come. Stand with me, please, as we stand together. The choir sings as they sing. You come. I'll greet you as you do.